everyone, it's Sarah Mason from the HMC Network, and this is the Conversations Podcast, and it is part three of our series, The Age of Distraction. I'm here with screenwriters Warren Lewis. Good afternoon. And Stephen Gogshow. Hi. How are you guys? I'm good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is as good as it gets, <laughs> This has been a fun series. Yeah, and I like it. Thanks for coming along for the ride on this with us always good questions and always interesting to be with warren lewis always <laughs> nice to just talk until you tell me to stop <laughs> i'd love to not tell you and just have you continually talk and that's her nightmare ladies and so uh, in this series in this part three i'd like to discuss writing in the age of trump because Let's get into it. I mean, let's face it. It is a thing. <laughs> it is hard to ignore. It is hard to ignore the impact and that it's not having an effect on everyone who does what you guys do. And I and I want to start off by talking about the reboot of Roseanne, which uh, folks, Mr. Gagshaw here, wrote for the original. And I'd like to hear your take on that. But both of you, just to start off, what's your thoughts on that? I wrote for Roseanne. It was my second job mm. in television. It was your second job? It was my second job in television. What was your first? My first job was um, the little-known but much-loved Bakersfield PD, okay. which was on Fox when Fox was barely on television. And um, it was a wonderful TV show about... Six guy cops in Bakersfield. That's great. It was a mess. Who and it was, was in it? Um, it was Ron Eldard. Oh, and yeah. Giancarlo Esposito and Tony Pena and Brian Doyle Murray. I, yeah, Murray. I know who all those people and are. And it yeah. was uh, created by a guy named Larry Levin. And it was really wonderful and deserved a longer life. Huh. Actually, Time Magazine called it the best show you're not watching. Oh, really? And that did not help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Roseanne was your second job. It was my second job. I was a baby writer. This mm. is when, um, you know, most shows now have anywhere from six to 12 writers. There were 25 writers on Roseanne. I was number 25. Holy cow. So how many people had she fired already when you got there? She was already quite – this was season seven. She was already Uh-oh. quite notorious for unloading. Wow. She liked to pick on white boys who went to Ivy League schools. Really? So my days, I guess, were numbered. And um, and and I was fired uh, after the first – after my first season there. So really? I – you know, it was – Look, even though uh, there were those who had gone before me, it was still humiliating hmm. to have been fired, even though she just wanted to hire her, literally her prop master, <laughs> um, because she made, he made her laugh on set. But I, I already sort of didn't like her. Okay. She run roughshod. She was not respectful of uh, my bosses, the writers on the show. She was a little mean-spirited. 
she sounds like somebody else. <laughs> so wait a minute. She wanted to hire someone completely unqualified to write, but they made her laugh. Wow. Well, well Who done. does that sound like? <laughs> um, she was a narcissist. She was... Um, she was not really well. She was mm. far, not really well, meaning not not really not mentally generous. well. <laughs> um, you know, she she had had her issues, and, okay. I, and, and I'm not here to judge her. Uh, she she, unlike the person you're referring to, was very bright mm-hmm. and very talented. That yeah, that I believe. So, uh, and a woman. Uh, trying to forge her way yeah. in a man's world, so you ha- you have to give her yeah. her props and Absolutely. Her respect. So, having said that, um, you know it was my first firing in a business that's full of uh, not lasting. You it's- haven't finished this show yet, so stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. And so, when the reboot came around, I met that with sort of mixed emotions and was not interested in it. Mm. And then when it did so well um, in its initial airing, but I heard, I have not seen it, and I heard it did well because, and I already knew this about her, that she in real life is a Trump supporter and on the show is a vocal Trump supporter. And um, she is Jackie is not, you know, they do sort of a mix. Uh, Why do you think? It did so well. Is it just the obvious that there's, you know, Trump America feels like they're not, nothing's being developed for them and here's something that finally is? I mean, uh, the three of us have spoken about this before. Mm. Um, I think so. You know, if you go on to the comment section of Deadline Hollywood, yeah. which is, you know, the industry trade website the comments uh some of them are are pretty toxic about hating liberal leaning hollywood Mm -hmm. and so in having her you know be so front forward in support of him i'm i'm sure that and the fact that people were just intrigued in seeing what they were going to do look this is a show in its heyday attracted 30 million viewers, right. which is crazy numbers. And some of those people were going to come back just out of curiosity. So it was 18 million, I believe. That's right. Yeah. And I, I mean, the fact that it, it it's not attracting as much as the heyday is, you could argue is for all the competition it has and not just because it's not necessarily a popular reboot for this time. But I, I'm curious what you guys think in terms of the sustainability of this, because I feel that this kind of thing is more divisive than, you know, gap bridging, actually. And I just don't know. In other words, if you're creating content that's for a segment of the population for political reasons versus the shows that bring people together, things like Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. I mean, everybody on every side loves those shows. I'm not sure that's the business we're in, frankly. I'm, okay, not, I'm so. not sure building bridges is the business that we're in. I, well, I, I'm not uh, suggesting but, it is, but yeah, talk about well, that. Well, for me, I, full disclosure, I was Stevens, nothing personal. I never watched the show. I just, you know, was doing something else, and then you're was, writing, and then resuming consciousness. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> when it started, when this, when the reboot started, I said, "Oh, great! In the age of reboots, this might be the ultimate reboot." 
because mm-hmm. she comes she comes packing an audience. First of all, True. because she is who she is, she's been hated by both sides of the political agenda, whatever you like, and um, she's doing doing something that it's not bridge building, but I think it's damn smart. And that is, there are people that feel underrepresented, or they feel that their voices mm-hmm. aren't being heard. If that true, whether that's true or not, I'm not in that business either. But the fact that there's they're sitting down to watch television and they're they're in, that they're engaging in our industry, which they sometimes they deride, mm. is an important thing as well. The fact that she's got Jackie on the show, speaking for the other side, if that's well, and and divide, you know the American family, in my experience, and it's limited, of course had that conversation around this election. A lot of people just kind of like fell apart. Families stopped talking to each other, yeah, which always true. happens. It, I mean, it always happens. But it really it? happened this time, like more so than... I remember when Nixon got elected, my grandfather almost got into a fist fight with the guy next door. It was, but this is really big. Yeah. But the, the other part of Roseanne, and you have to remember, um, in 1988 or whenever it was created, is... Uh, so much that was written about it was, oh, here's finally a family that looks like us, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who's messy and a little overweight and are they're trying to make ends meet. It's admirable. And, and it was a big deal because, mm-hmm. you know, not everyone was uh, Laura Petrie and Rob. Yeah. And, I mean, and- all in the family did that, too. Uh, yeah, he did. He look. He certainly had that. He had those great conversations, right? Uh, not to be really replicated too often. But the original Roseanne was was not a show that was overtly political. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when it was political, it was you know they had you know she had gay friends. Yeah. And, you know, remember Sandra Bernhard was, That's right. you know, yeah. on the show. And She's back. Is she? Is she yeah. back? Yeah. Cool. Look, we'll see. Is it sustainable? Um, uh, I, I think in the end, they're going to be sluts for numbers. Mm. And if you're not entertaining and if you're not making people laugh and if you're just there for the diatribe and the mm-hmm. polemic, uh, I, I, you know, people probably uh, – look, I haven't seen the show, but – if it's funny, um, and the show was always funny, well, not the last two seasons, maybe, <laughs> um, I think people will stick around. But 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 you know that some people are not watching because they're pissed off because and, they yeah because she's a Trump supporter, which Absolutely. is unfortunate. I think I, I you know I, I I'm curious though. For one uh, one thing, and I don't know if we want to get into a big statistical conversation about the Nielsen ratings, but how reliable are those things anymore? Because you they're not measuring the the way that people consume content today, and that's an, that's a thing that I always wonder when they say eighteen million households watched. It's really like, and and that's another thing I wonder when people when uh, in terms of sustainability because people. Are so as this series is called, Age of Distraction. You know, people don't get aren't as loyal. I don't think to uh, shows the as they used be to be. The model just might be antique because I was having this conversation with an executive yesterday. I said, you know, and the conversation was some, something along these lines. Once upon a time, if you were going to be a, an executive in the networks, mm. chances are you came from what department? Not creative, certainly. You came from scheduling. 
Interesting. Mm. Generally. And that was a big deal. What's on Thursday, 9 o'clock, is a big question and a multi-trillion dollar game. We don't care anymore. That model is just antique. Now we're watching the Steve Godshow network because we're making our own network, which was a dream come true in the Marshall McLuhan era. Mm. But now it's actually happened. So I'm not sure that you can have a Nielsen, a representative Nielsen family anymore for a couple of reasons. First of all, the delivery system's different. Right. And there's something else that's a little dis- more disturbing, that is disturbing, and that is a highly fractured audience even within households. Ah, okay. That's an interesting point. Because so in other words, mom and dad might be watching it, but the kids, whereas in the past, it, there's no more family entertainment. There's no show that everyone sits down together. It's, it's so great. If you, if you go to some people's houses and you turn on their television – It'll have their, you know, their Netflix and the two kids are, let's say, Daisy and Garrett. And it'll, it, all the this, profiles. It, yeah. it has everybody's profile. Smart. And that's what's happening. Yeah. And, um, and probably never to return. I suspect, you know, that they used to talk about, um, what was the phrase, a four quadrant Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't exist in television. I mean, maybe there, I mean, what for, what's four quadrant? Um, you know, it's it's that sort of wide swath swath of of demographic uh-huh. that gets everybody. Ah, uh, okay. And so, it's antique. Nobody's doing it. It's because mm-hmm. it's completely antique. Because Bud and, and Susie might be playing a, a game. And they might be online, and, then t- and their our entertainment model just doesn't serve them at all. And if Daisy's watching This Is Us, uh, as are her parents, mm-hmm. they're not watching it at the same time. That's that's another point because, and then there's the whole binging, and yeah, there's too much competition on too many different screens. So this guy who's been president of FX for a long time, mm-hmm. John Landgraf, said something last year in. Stop me if we've talked about this. He said, um, and it was controversial, he said there's too much content. There are just too many TV shows. It came, yeah. up, last, it came up last night. It did? Yes, absolutely. And what did people say? I had a, a flummoxed executive and three very smart people in the room, not, not including myself, saying, I don't know what to do. I feel humiliated by it. The word humiliated was used. I feel uninformed because I can only watch so much. And this is a big deal. Not, there's a certain amount of alienation involved, but there's also, once again, that fracturing. People staying in, their, in whatever their interest is uh, and not venturing across the demographic line. Mm-hmm. That 18 to 34 demographic changes all the time. We all know this, but they're not reliable. They're just not because they're not doing anything we can measure. This is more Stevens Field than mine, but I I don't know. My students at the university are are these people, and it would be very instructive to bring a network executive to sit in the back of my classroom in in one particular class, which is a cinema studies class and very, you know, artsy schmartsy. I usually ask people, what are they watching, just for the hell of it? And it's not all, you know, bicycle thief or something. Nobody's watching their shows. I will go into their movies, and this is your target demographic, ladies and gentlemen. And it's interesting, and, and this is a serious question, and we all know this. This has basically been a delivery system since its inception to sell shit, 
to sell soap, to sell cars, right. to sell beer. And it's why 18 to 34 was so attractive mm-hmm. because their buying patterns were still, you know, in flux. Right. Like, it's over. They, you know, uh, what are they selling these kids on Netflix that don't have, that there's no commercials? Well, I, I for the life of me, don't know how they're going to turn a profit. I mean, I know that they're banking content because they believe at the at the end they'll when after Disney and everyone takes away all their licensing, they'll have all the content. Mm. And but I still don't understand their business model. And I'm, you know how and it's could not nine ninety nine a month that maybe will then go to ten ninety nine a month. No, no way. How could that be profitable? There's a limit. To how profitable that can be, especially if you're only watching three shows and someone comes along and says, oh, you're a Walking Dead fan, which I used to be, as you know, we'll sell you The Walking Dead and nothing else. Or we'll sell you the six shows that you want, a matter of packaging. And this is a big question in our business, both academically and and creatively, which is not always the same thing, is what's leading here exactly? Is the delivery system leading the content or the other way around? I have my own dog in that fight. Which is? Yeah. Uh, I think delivery leads content, always. I mean, I'm being a little extreme. Not always, but usually the delivery system, I think, leads the content. It's still, I've, so, I've, had this, I've had this fight. So Netflix is going to have a lot of space and a lot of desire, and they know who they're serving, and therefore they're going to go to the, the suppliers and say, I need another Babylon Berlin, yeah, or I need another Walking Dead, which is not Netflix, I know, but we need this because we can deliver it this way. Well, I want to talk about that historically for a minute. So, let VHS Hmm. to DVD. What were those delivery systems leading the content? You think? Absolutely, and I I will reserve the anecdotes for later. Okay, but an important (laughs) member of our community. No, no longer with us. I'm talking to you, Jack Melendi. Got in front of Congress and said, if you let this VHS thing happen, this VHS thing happen, my industry is going to be over if you let people watch the movies at home. And he was a smart guy. Mm-hmm. He was wrong, but he was a very smart guy. That absolutely led content because suddenly there were studios, and I can name four off the top of my head, that had vaults full of what they considered crap mm-hmm. that suddenly was making them money. A little company right. named Disney <laughs> built an empire just exactly that way. RKO came back as a corporate entity because they had stuff. And because, talking about making your own schedule, all of a sudden a mom could go to her kids and say, I'm plunking you in front of this thing. See you in three hours, kid. And that was... Yeah, I was... Yeah, I was that kid. It's, it's, a, it, <laughs> it's a big deal. Our but I was Jim that Tierney kid with was, television, actually. When I now think about it, because we can go back further and say that television drove it as well from you know, radio to TV, film, all of that, because, you know, I was plunked down in front of Sesame Street, whereas that wasn't something that was, you know, capable when my mom was a baby. You know what I mean? It was Sesame Street for us. It was like, there's a reason why a few of us New Yorker types know a handful of movies and a handful of TV shows by heart. Mm -hmm. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I can name six movies that I literally know by heart. Because of some quirk and copyright law, they were shown three times a day for a week. What, name one of them. Um, Sands of Iwo Jima. <laughs> which comes as a surprise. You know that by art? Yeah. Never seen it. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> I haven't either. Spoiler alert, we took the island. Uh, so, and uh, I guess the, the John Ford Cavalry Trilogy. 
Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So to go back to your original question, or maybe it's not, is how do you get these people to to watch? Yeah, and I want inter- to just put in interject something into that cuz it just got me thinking. So my partner, as you know, Jake. You love Jake. Love Jake. Oh, Jake. He's not here. We're saying this. I know. He's not here. It's okay. Uh is a millennial. Hmm. There's and he is a fan of old films. He loves a lot of he's not a typical, you know, he loves all kinds of films. I've been trying to get him to watch one in particular that I know he will love and the light bulb will go off over his head, and that's Diner. Oh, oh. 1983. Yeah. We love. Yeah, one of the greatest stop. scripts yeah. oh my of God. all time. Why is he I resisting? Truly, st- like Seinfeld was born. For all of those, you know, were born from that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And here's why he's resisting. Because he needs to be sat down in a theater and and be forced to watch it. Because if he's not, and it doesn't grab him the way the content that he chooses to watch today grabs him, the same kind of thing with politics. We, we go towards what validates our interests. He starts going on his phone. That's, and he may still okay. like it, but it, it's, it's not going to keep him... At the watching it for two hours. So we all love Diner, and but if you think about it, um, five guys in 1959 Baltimore think about that story. Eddie's getting married. He's going to give his girlfriend a quiz about the Baltimore (laughs) Colts. A friend is coming home from college, and there's not a lot happening. In that movie. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like anyone and, who loves Seinfeld. So, but my question is, uh, could Barry Levinson get Diner made today? No. If, if it but, weren't Barry Levinson. He really wasn't Barry Levinson then that either. Was, he became Barry Levinson soon thereafter. But does but, he yeah. have to? Can't we still appreciate things that came before, things that couldn't be made today? You just said it. Yeah. Is he going to sit down in a theater and watch he, it? He would sit down in a theater to watch it. Like, if it played at the Arrow, we'd go, and he'd probably go, oh, my God, I love this film. But what I'm saying is he won't – it won't sustain his attention hmm. in a living room. I mean, the opening of that movie is a tracking shot. They're at a party, and somebody's uh, – I think Kevin Bacon has given up his date for five bucks. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And um, Fenwick. Fenwick has given up his date for five bucks. I named my bunny after him. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) But it's not the opening that these kids, Jake, um, are accustomed (laughs) to. It's, you know, no one dies in this movie. There's no car crashes. The only punch thrown is by Tim Daly getting some kid back. Remember? That's a great scene. True story. And um, it's just kind of heartbreaking that you, and and this gets to content, and what Warren and I have to try to do is um, how do you grab the attention of executives when we're trying to sell movies and television shows? Uh, if, if, If you don't have something that they know 
is going to be noisy mm-hmm. and diner is not noisy. Um, this is us. Isn't noisy. It's not, but it's, I, I, it's, um, but it's, it's, it's original, but yes, but I don't know if that sustains someone too. like, in, like I, I can't quite figure out what you tell me you guys are the, intimacy, the writers intimacy so, in the case of this is us you can sell intimacy that's the only thing you really have to pedal because you cannot this comes up a lot in the discussions i have you cannot compete with the explosions it's just not going to happen you can make all the little cgi inventions you want but you're not competing so do what we competes is intimacy get the Our, kids so I, <laughs> uh, I i i was on a plane yesterday and i always do this very unscientific survey when I'm coming back from the lovely restroom and it's to take a look and see what everyone's watching. Mm. And again, it's, it's, it's this crappy version of Nielsen that I'm doing (laughs) and it's, it's all explosions. Yeah. And and maybe that's the plane of it all. Guilty because When I, on the three long airplane trips I had in the last year, I caught up with all the action movies I wouldn't be caught dead going to a theater to. Very good. Um, that's what I did ah. because I because I, I wouldn't watch them otherwise because you're not allowed to go get out of the airplane. You just they frown on that, and that's what. <laughs> and, I, and I love action movies. I've written action movies all my life, but right. but there's a certain kind of movie. Doctor Strange. Well, I never saw Doctor Strange until I was coming back from Sweden, and then I saw it twice. It was pretty. It was, good. It, it it was, was fun. It was pretty yeah. damn good. But it took a transcontinental trip to make me yeah. want to do it. That's about delivery, you know. Well, and so. let me just say this: I, we're especially our network are in the business of a lot of action movie appreciation because mm. we review a lot of genre fiction stuff. So I'm not opposed to that. I but I. There's so much more, and how, I mean, at, at the same time. So on that subject, where we're talking about, there's so much content, too much content. Kids, turn off your phones. Yeah, kids, Sorry. kids. No, I was just watching a little Netflix on my phone. And let's bring it back to to the whole point of writing in this politically charged era. Mm. It should that be something that is the Roseanne model something everybody should be doing? Are we so angered that we have to just get it out there? Well, you know, look, networks that are occasionally original and more often than not, they're imitative. And it was interesting when Roseanne did 18 million in its reboot premiere, uh, there were all these pieces in deadline about how to, how do the other networks figure out how to do that? Other more reboots, yeah, which it, is happening. Of course, I mean, Murphy Brown's coming back. That'll be the other side and of that. That's exactly right. And and again, it's. I don't think that's sustainable. No, I think people are, will be curious and they'll come back. And but are they going to stay for? The echo chamber is a powerful place. Mm. It, it really is highly. There's nothing in the world as satisfying as being. In a room full of people, I think exactly like you do, only more so. Very good. There's nothing. There's nothing like it, and it explains a lot of our programming, yeah. especially a certain kind of our programming. Uh, I think Rose. I haven't. Okay, full disclosure. I haven't seen Roseanne either, but 
there's something to be said for that echo chamber, preserving that particular group of people. The way news shows do, the way late, late night talk shows do. Uh, 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 can you program for them forever? Ten years ago, I would have said no. Mm. No, I would say absolutely. Hmm. Because people have the choice of saying, no, thank you, I'm going to go watch Sense of Evil Gene if they had any So sense. what does that mean? You just program for everything? I think, you, I think if you're writing, this is a question for Stephen, if you're writing for a highly, I think the word I want is fractured audience or highly divided audience, is the goal to write for as many of those divided people as can or to bridge or, or to build that bridge. Personally, I don't think we're in the bridge building business. Yeah, look, yeah. I mean, take a look at Netflix and Stranger Things. Yeah. Um, got them some kids mm-hmm. and it got <laughs> some of us who had some 80s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And then there's Grace and Frankie. Is that the name of the show? Yeah. yeah. And Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. getting that. And Norman Lear is um, is is creating a show about some guys dying in Florida. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and So you got the whole death demographic going for you. The recently, <laughs> recently deceased. Are gonna... So Netflix is being all things to all people? And, I think so. Or is that sustainable? Well, who knows? It feels like restaurants to me sometimes because some people just will not eat French food. So there's a small French restaurant on the corner, I guess. I'm one mm. of those people, by the way, that serves that. And there's, there's this and there's that. And then there's a couple of big diners, I guess. But television starting, especially television, and features to a certain extent and maybe even worse, we are going for a very select clientele. Not the best clientele, but the people that will show up for our, pardon, I'll keep it going, for, for this meal. You know, look, like, I, I like the restaurant metaphor. And sometimes Netflix is starting to feel like TGI Fridays. Mm-hmm. It's like there's just too many pages. Yeah. It's the Cheesecake Factory. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And you you start scrolling uh, for want of anything yeah. more profound to do with your life. And it's overwhelming. And then you go back to, um, you know, it's tried and true. Right. And but I've, I've seen people do this. They They just sit there for. Oh, yeah. And. Well, there's many times where we are trying to find something to watch and we can't. We are too much alone, folks. <laughs> no, I'm I'm completely serious. No, it's true. This is, this is the one thing about this whole industry and our, our media and the, the aesthetics of it that really scares me. The only thing. I don't care about the echo chamber so much. I care about the the unblissful solitude of our audience. That That really concerns me because there's a lot of people... It's, it's network kind of touched on it a little bit. The TV, the movie network, alone in their little building, mm-hmm. watching exactly what they want, and never going outside, and never speaking to anyone else. And at the risk of sounding like a '70s cliche guy, I wonder what that says about us as people. That given all the choices that we have, our choice is isolation. Well, and that's a broad, that. yeah, it's a broader issue of just what technology's done to us too. Because we are very isolated. You know, look, we've all seen the memes of five, you know, 17-year-old girls sitting at the coffee shop and they're all on their phones. Right. And they don't speak with one another and they're addicted and, um, and they have their relationships 
through Instagram and Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's a default choice then to, um, to tune out your parents and tune out uh, the world and, and watch some some crap on Netflix or YouTube I, in I think their case. <laughs> it's scary and it's also damn. I, I, I might be taking this too far. Please feel, feel, shut no, up. No, go shut far. Up Warren's a good safe word. Totally. Say it again. <laughs> shut up. Warren works as a safe word. Stop. <laughs> no, I'm serious because that kind of isolation is not only disturbing, but it's also dangerous because breaking that isolation, the person that can break that isolation better have good intentions because if that, whoever he or she may be, and it's going to happen. Because you know, the center cannot hold. It's just the way it is. Breaking that isolation and getting a bunch of people in it, getting a crowd together, a crowd of isolated people together is a pretty scary prospect. Well, you know who gets the crowd together? Mm. Is 9 o'clock on Sunday night on HBO. And obviously... Thrones. Not for, it's not going to happen. But it's, it's always compelling to me. And so I guess I'm as bad as anyone else to then go on social media and see what everyone's saying. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, that's the shared community some of us yes. have when, yeah. we, when we're alone on a Sunday night. That's true. So is it as writers, are, are you tasked with some of the responsibility of taking people out of isolation? What do you, what do you think about that? Or are you just contributing to it by adding more content out there i just want to make money there's there's, yeah there's the whole money thing but for me the most it's i'm going to contradict myself for me the most important things that have happened to me lately around the profession Mm -hmm. have been very intimate can you elaborate on sure uh i won't one of them's going to make me blub up but uh um i've had someone who was in real trouble I mean, like, not stupid, annoying coffee shop trouble, but someone who sought me out and said, you know, you saved my life, bro. Which doesn't happen in the movie business because it was a, you know, stupid little action movie. Wow. uh, Which, which? It was 13th Warrior, and it's a a long story, uh, but um, it it led to a chain of events that, you know, people in our business at this point would say, oh, that could be a movie, and it could. That one little movie seen in a foreign country far away had ramifications that traveled across the world. And that was a big deal for me. Um, that was a real payoff for me. But, the, know, but that, that's where the power is. I, I was recently at WonderCon and there was a Harry Potter uh, oh, panel, I which I, I'm, I'm a Harry Potter geek. And it was interesting what they did with this panel. They talked about, they pulled out different themes like, the spells and things like that. And then they equated it to psychology in our own lives. And they, they drew parallels and you could see that a lot of the people that are really fans of Harry Potter have had some sort of tragedy in their lives or, or felt isolated or felt like bullied or didn't belong. And, and this gives them power. And I think that art does do that. Of course, we all know this phrase catharsis. Yeah. And so (laughs) it is, in lives that are difficult, when you get the occasional uh, TV show that gives voice to all these things that we struggle with, mm-hmm. and um, and you find you know some truth and beauty in it, mm. it's it is it is your friend, and 
Um, God bless the creators of those shows who week in, week – look, I, I would like to think that I write things of substance. I would like yeah. to think you I do. watch you shows of substance. And, um, you know, MGM, art for art's sake. And I do think a lot of writers, um, uh, notwithstanding my glib comment about making money, they're, they're you know, look, they're writers and they mm. want. They could do anything, but they do this. They do this. <laughs> and it's awful. And and I think, you know, they're they're trying to write stuff of substance and hope that they get through the naysayers and get it made. And so um, they're trying to bring light. To to the subject, mm-hmm. I suspect, and I I bet the creators of This Is Us, including the creators of Game of Thrones, I I have a feeling they they just weren't out to to make a buck. Oh uh, no, yeah, certainly. How many generations? And this is at the, at the risk of being a cliche. How many generations have have had somewhere over the rainbow as their theme song? Yeah, it, it just reaches across generations. I Very know. nice. Well, it's true that this is the, and but that's intimacy. It's like mass intimacy. It's, yeah, to it, go back to what you said. Yeah, it's, it, because you make it your own. That's a different thing altogether. Because people have made. I'm you're going to use that as an example because I'm holding a hand mic, and I can start singing some of the rainbow and totally in this room. But um, please do. You know, she'll edit that out. I won't do that. <laughs> but, but, but no, it's, I will. It's it's about dreams and aspirations and wanting to be somewhere else. And I know it's there. Mm-hmm. And all I have to do is reach out for it. You can tell that story again and again and again. And the Jungians can have a field day with it. <laughs> and the Jungians at the thing is that Harry Potter's wand is really this, and the Freudians can say it's really that. <laughs> but it always comes down to it's magic. And it's transformation. And that's the business that we're in. Yeah. Because no matter how sophisticated you are, if you don't think this is magic, you really should be doing something else. Mm. So, Donald Glover. Yeah. Atlanta. When he won the Golden Globe for Atlanta, he gave reference to that. And I'm just going to mimic Warren here through Donald Glover. He said, when I was growing up, my parents didn't allow any magic. So when I could steal a minute away and watch some Disney. Mm. It's nothing like it. He goes, that's what I saw. Yeah, that's special. Well, that's, and that's the best thing about our business. Is I don't, you know, from, from being a business is knowing that you've touched people in a way that takes them out of their lives. Mm-hmm. A very old man who hated movies, wasn't interested in movies, who I showed movies to once said to me, I, sh- I sat him down and made him watch. I made him watch two of my favorite movies, and he wasn't crazy about it, but he did. Sands of Iwo Jima. No, close. Some no, well, actually, he, actually, he was in the original Road Company of Sands of Iwo Jima. So, okay. um, funny. But uh, I watched, we watched two movies, and one of them, uh, full disclosure, one of those, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and the other one was uh, Paths of Glory. And at mm-hmm. the end of Paths of Glory, he turned to me and he said, you mean that's it? What happened to these people? And that is film school. Right there. Because this old guy got touched so much by characters, he wanted to know what Major Dax was doing today. Mm. That's what we do. I mean, that's what I get up to do every day is hopefully create that moment. And you look at, you know, um, the success of a movie like Lady Bird, Mm -hmm. which is this tiny little movie, 2004, Sacramento, a girl in Catholic school fighting with her mom. Right. And, 
you know, I, I don't know what kind of business it did, but it did some award business. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you a nickel, that, uh, and I'll meet you here in 30 years when we can talk about it, that someone's going to be accepting that award and saying, and I remember seeing a ladybird and it really touched me. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. That's what's going to happen. Uh, Leonard Malton says, and don't take this the wrong way, Sarah, because I love you, as you know, and you've done more than this. He says, if your education begins with Star Wars and yours doesn't, but if, if your education begins with Star Wars and you've never seen a foreign film or a silent film, you're, he's cruel about it. He said, you're handicapped. It was not a politically correct thing to say. Maybe our job is to, even in the work we're doing now, show people that there's something else. That yeah. Well, yeah, and that brings back to the point where I was saying, how do we get them to? Because, I mean, and it actually, my dad, I was lucky. My dad took me to age inappropriate films all the time, constantly. I saw Cabaret when I was six. Awesome. And yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and much to my mother's dismay. But he took me to everything, and that was a thing we had together. But. That's not happening. Nope. And you as a professor and, t- you know, I mean, I can't even imagine how you get unless they're literally taking a class and have to watch Sands of Iwo Jima. Like how you get I can't j- get Jake to watch Diner in yeah. our living room. I do it two you know? ways. I, I do it one of two ways. First of all, there's, there's a lousy way to do it. Uh, and that's to assign it. You know, and I don't do that much. What I do if I really want that to happen is I pitch it and I don't tell them what I'm pitching. I'll just pitch them because, you know, it's a skill we develop. And people, if, if, if I'm selling it in that room, I know I've sold something because my students will go, wow, that sounds great. What is it? No. It's a movie that was made 40 years ago. Go home and watch it. And they will. Hmm. But it's. They, but they're also have to because they're taking no, a class. Uh, no. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I could make their lives miserable if I, I feel like it, but I'm, no, I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, look, I'm ne- just. To go back to this, network executives are scary. Are scared if it's not noisy enough. Mm-hmm. And I've heard executives use this phrase: "Does it turn the key?" Yeah. You know, does it create buzz? Are people talking about it? Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's sort of like the conversation we had before we started. I asked you two what you were watching, and that's the way. I get my information mm. and some of it is on social media and what's, you know, what's getting hits, mm-hmm. you know, mm. what is getting the buzz. And so they're afraid if you don't have, um, something a little shocking, a little sensational, I, I forgot the name of it. What was the Netflix show about the girl committing suicide? Oh, um, Oh, uh, 13 reasons why. 13, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I didn't watch it. I heard it wasn't great, but it had a noisy premise. Mm-hmm. And it was something that some journalists were going to write about, at, le- at least online. Right. Pearl clutching and breathlessly the entire time because apparently, I don't know if you, whether you know this or not, but our medium is so powerful that people are going to commit suicide just to be in with their friends, which is an idiotic notion. But it sells, no, it doesn't sell newspapers because there are no newspapers, but it sells sensationalism which is the business that those folks are in well yeah and let me i just to add on to your point as a journalist i can tell you that the people who are writing about this stuff are largely not journalists anymore that that's a whole other subject i mean that there is so there are so many people there's such a need for content online and a need for people to it, 
Pauline Kale isn't writing reviews anymore. Nope. This is like, you know, I, w- I went to film school and she was my hero. And I was trying to do that kind of thing. And it, that is not who's out there anymore. It's Joe Blow who has an opinion on his blog and has no discipline, didn't obtain any discipline to get there. And it's just these paragraphs and paragraphs. everyone needs content providers. I mean, you can go like I get the hits of everything, you know, you submit for this and it's literally bullshit there. It, it means nothing. There's so, so much noise. Think about the, uh, importance that rotten tomatoes has suddenly assumed that we sh- yeah, let's and, talk and, about and, that and, actually. <laughs> and your example of Pauline kale is perfect. Like who's going to read a Pauline kale review now, which was pages and pages yeah. and pages, mm. you know, Anthony Lewis now, and Joe Morgenstern for the Wall Street Journal. They're beautiful writers, but they've been told, let's tighten this thing up mm-hmm. because the attention span are the gnats who are hovering above Rotten Tomatoes, literally just looking for a symbol. Yeah. The bullet points but will kill us. No one's qualified nice. to do this stuff anymore. You know, I mean, it, so there's all these people who are just giving these opinions. Anthony Lane, by the way, New Yorker. It, it, it might as well be, you know, my sister, like, <laughs> giving her opinion. And you don't even have a sister. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kathleen. But... Uh, <laughs> joke. Uh, it's okay. I'm sure she doesn't listen. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Rotten Tomatoes, I have uh, – oh, I cannot I stand well, I, Rotten I Tomatoes. I can't, I can't even – they hate it too. My, my, uh, the executives, the studios are they just – ru- Including I mean, the studio that apparently owns a piece of it. Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, who is it? It's – um. is it Warner Brothers? One of the studios of, owns a piece of it. One of the exec- I think it's Warner Brothers. It was a big, a big controversy. No, excuse me. The Hindenburg was a big controversy. But uh, – Last year, because he was saying, "Oh, Rotten Tomatoes is destroying our business." Right. I forget who it was. I'm yeah. Like, I wouldn't name names anyway. But he said, and then it was revealed. Yes, they are destroying your business, and your company owns forty percent of it. So, what are you going to do about this thing exactly? It, I I don't know how long we can be in that business in the Rotten Tomatoes business. I just don't know. It has a lot of power right now. I mean, there's several films. It's that- not going away. You know, no, it's not it's going away. And be, literally now you see in trailer, in movie promoting, <gasps> it's, it's 100% so fresh. Fresh. It's you heartbreaking. Know? It is heartbreaking. Because actually the metrics they use, it's not even real. It's a percentage of this wide group of ding-dongs. That and like it's it's drives me crazy. And there's so many movies that have like a 20% yet other movies that are ridiculous will have like a 90%. This is interesting as a demographic discussion because I just wonder what that demographic is and how you please them because some studio executive right this minute is sitting here thinking not about his audience but about Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. How you hit that demographic. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm sorry to use his phrase, but Rotten Tomatoes is fake news. Yeah. It's just, it's crap. It doesn't matter. It is fake news. And it's dominating the way people decide to go to movies. Which is crazy, and that, but that's a whole other piece of this because, and then there's another thing I wanted to talk about, and I we've talked about it before, but I think it it's worth bringing back into this discussion is theatrical, you know, g- going physically going to 
to see a film at the movies is dying, yet they're building more theaters. Guilty. I don't quite understand that. Guilty. Guilty no. w- that you don't go? As much as I should. I only go to a movie that I know has to be seen on a big screen. That's how we all are, isn't it? Cause, yeah. I mean, but why I wasn't going to see Dunkirk you know, on a screener. Right. Yeah, there is that. I'm a terrible movie audience. I mean, the, the, um, the American Cinematheque is having a nitrate festival. I'm yeah. going to that, but I'm not sure I'm going to, you know. Well, you're good, Sarah. You go. Yeah. I go to two a week. You're a good customer. Yeah. I you, go you, to the theaters twice a week. Do you get that little AMC uh, thing? That, I've got it all. You're the got only the person AMC. in America. You're, <laughs> you are Rotten Tomatoes. Let's face it. <laughs> you, you are that tomato. Yeah, but I – there's – and I will I will actually go see a film. Like I'm going to go see uh, Chappaquiddick and I'm going to go see A Quiet Place. Good choices. This weekend. Yeah, I kind of want to go see A Quiet Place, too. And there is, but there's a part of me that, you know, wants to steal it off of I I understand. I understand. That's leading by example. Whoops. (laughs) That was was Warren Lewis on the stealing (laughs) comment. You're only stealing from yourselves. I know. Uh, I'm not going to steal. I'm going to break into his car later. It's going to be. What's I mean? What's going to happen to to theatrical? What's going to happen to network TV? Because is network TV going to finally die? It's dying a slow death. I mean, is it going to be the last gone? Time you watched a commercial. I don't. I can't tell you. Perfect question. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's really frightening Yeah, uh, to think that the entire economic structure of television is imploding mm-hmm. and um, how, how, how are they going to keep this train moving? Uh, what are they saying? I mean, what do you talk to? You know, you're pitching your stuff so, and working. I, you know, look, the notion is um, if you don't and, – and this is nonsense, of course – um, if you don't watch it in real time, uh, you're going to find out what happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is nonsense. Oh, that's their trick. <laughs> like- uh, but, but, it's, but, but that's nonsense. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the, uh, ratings metrics have changed to include three days plus seven mm-hmm. days plus they want to see. Who's DVRing what? Mm-hmm. But the, you know, you sitting through to see, um, you know, the um, Bud Light commercial is not happening. Well, who wants to do that anymore? No one. Like no one. Ha- you don't have to. That's the the thing. We don't have to. So why should we? I think the one thing network television has going for it that nobody else has, if this is any comfort, is no matter when people watch that show. Network programming is, I'm going to use that word again, really managed to be very intimate with their audience. And that means they're not, they don't really care so much about what happens and what the payoff is, but sometimes you just want to see that guy again. Or you want to see whoever, the, Angie Harmon in my case, <laughs> immediately you know, come into my living room again because... That's a relation. That's a real obscure re- that, and that, dated. Well, I know, but <laughs> yeah, so Warren's very old school. 
Are you telling me Angie Harmon is worn off? <laughs> She's <laughs> lovely. She is lovely. Well, I stay up late at night and watch reruns. Uh, that kind of intimacy is admirable in any... You can't get that intimacy in a, on Netflix, you don't not think? Not free. Or? Okay. Okay. But you can on YouTube. You can go watch content on YouTube. That's true. Or, That's true. But... I, you know, it's interesting because the Luddites, you know, the sort of technolo- technologically handicapped, mm. um, yeah. they're, they're never going to go to the tablets, but they're getting old. Right. You know, uh, it's funny. Um, if I'll tell someone, someone who's a Luddite about a television show, you know they're old when they say, what channel is that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, but these, you know, but the millennials and the kids behind them, um, they're, well, that's a question. although they're lazy too, and they like mm-hmm. to sit on the couch and eat, you know, and uh, be prone and be comfortable. And there is something comfortable about Sitting in front of a television set, mm-hmm. and um, what's the question I have? That's not that's not going to die. I mean, people really love you know the phrase "couch potato" is not going away. But I guess so. In other words, you're saying protein maybe. TV won't go away in your home, but but what no, do you, it's not. But yeah, but network TV is a whole yeah, other thing. Know. And in fact, I. I, I, I have TiVo, and there's a button on TiVo that says uh, skip through the commercial. Yeah. It's a button now. Yeah. It's remarkable that a product that's sold on a commercial tells you to skip commercials, but that's – So – I have a question about this. Um, do networks – honest question. Do networks have the sort of identity they used to have? CBS used to have an identity. You're right. An, an NBC program had an identity – ABC early on did lost it. And I think came back a little bit. It, do people say, is it like the old days of movies where people say, "I want to go see a Warner Brothers movie"? I don't know if that still exists. Does it? Uh, no, but uh, you're completely right. And I remember that in the '80s with the Battle of the Network Stars. And I know that's a crazy example, but it, there was it, NBC. I thought of NBC as kind of the better. NBC, you know, was Friends and Seinfeld. Yeah. CBS and, was Norman Lear. Well, it was also aging crime shows. Right. You know, the puzzle shows. Right. Yeah. ABC had a little more working class blue collar to yep. it. And Fox was, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what stuck. But CBS, I think, does have a brand more so today because they're... This is their hope. Yeah, I mean, well, they're the they're kind of the most popular. They their shows are popular, no so question. I think by vir- virtue of that, they have the brand of put your show on CBS and it will. This is do before well. your time when they would consider the Tif- the Tiffany Network. It'd be very instructive for people to go into the past again, past Angie Harmon, and into a more distant bit to look at the CBS schedule for a Sunday night in. I don't know the early '70s, and see that most of those, pro- a lot of that programming was not meant to make money. Even it was the 20th century or uh, a family event. And I think one of the hopes that networks have, if they have any at all, 
is to say, this is our brand. This is what we do. You can rely on us to deliver this kind of programming. Go watch a CBS show, I guess. Uh, I don't know if they have it now. Well, look, the um, it, maybe it's an aging demographic that still loves the puzzle crime shows, yeah. the NCIS yeah. shows. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you know, it's not the demographic they want. Right. But they're going to continue to make doctor shows and cop yeah. shows and law shows. You know, may rest in peace, Stephen Botchko. Yeah. You know, uh, he he found a way yeah. to uh, to pull them in, and that was a different time, though. Well, he he modernized the drama. He did. That's true. And he brought in these these more complicated storylines yeah. and these intersecting storylines and these serial and very, you know. Uh, on Hill Street Blues, they went from solving the crime to falling into bed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was... That's true. The f- and NYPD Blue, you know, um, had a, a a racist cop who was the anti-hero mm-hmm. of that show on network. Yeah. And that ignited and spread to the badge and eventually to the uh, mental blank show set in, in Baltimore. Did the- Homicide. The- the- uh, the Wire? Oh, The, the wire. wire. Yeah, it seems like that. Do you mean th- The Shield? Yeah, not thinking about You the- know, Stephen Bonchko was quoted as saying uh, something really interesting. He thought that the ground that he broke on NYPD Blue would set the tone and open the doors for more engaging and braver dramas on networks. Mm. It did not, mm. but it did on cable. It ignited another, yes. it ignited another Interesting delivery point. system. Did. How about that? And it's, it's sort of sad. And it goes back to your original question. What's going to happen to the networks? Yeah. And are they going to get braver? Because yeah. cable's doing some cool stuff still. I mean, they're putting out content that people are watching. Network has one stunning, dis- among its disadvantages. We're losing you here. There's one particularly stunning disadvantage that network has, and that is regulation. Uh, because the FCC doesn't really care what you're doing on YouTube all that much, although they will. Mm, that will change. That yeah. will change. But at the moment, you cannot do certain things on a network. And, it, you know, so. It's interesting. And if you... Um, so the, I, I feel like the late night wars are sort of appropriate mm-hmm. to this mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. And Colbert has obviously... Um, and he's just smarter and <laughs> and more incisive than let's say Jimmy Fallon. Right. And um and he's he's making hay with Donald Trump every night mm-hmm. and he's taking some chances. I don't remember when this happened. It used to be that if you could make out the word, so if it, it, they still bleep it out, but if you could make out that he were saying fuck Oh, you couldn't do it? They would pixelate it. Okay. Or they would cut it. But But not anymore, yeah. Now it's nightly. Huh. He's, he'll have a joke, they'll bleep it out, (laughs) but the audience at home knows what the joke was. Is he still number one right now? He's, I don't know that he is number one. I think he's barely beating Fallon. Okay. And Kimmel's. Sort of evened back out. They're all kind of. Neck and neck and doing okay. Well, and we've had we had this conversation before about how Colbert 
took off and what became number one after kind of a bumpy start because he chose to go there. He chose to take on Donald Trump, whereas Fallon didn't. And people were really wanting someone to take it on. Like, so where are we now? Are we now? So with Roseanne's success, let's call it success. I'm skeptical, you know, in terms of really the large audience out there, especially when you talk about the fractured family, when you have the kids upstairs watching something else. I mean, who are what are the demographics for that? It, you know, but with that, the sustainability of that in question, let's say, is it something that has that shifted? Things seem to shift so fast. It's like, OK, Colbert took that on. He rose to number one. Do we not take that on anymore or where are we at now? With You know, and this is my question for you, too, is. So as the election was rolling, and I think I mentioned, I've said this, unfortunately, before, is my friend was, would say, what's your favorite show on television right now? And I said, this is us or Game of Thrones. And mm-hmm. he said, mine's the Trump show. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. And, um, and are is, people I think. in Trump fatigue? Mm-hmm. Are, they, are you tired of hearing Stephen Colbert make fun of it? Are you tired of Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell mm-hmm. going after it. On the other side, are people tired of Sean Hannity taking shots at the Democrats? This is interesting because it's an interesting group to examine because Colbert and those cats, they're on network television. They're reaching millions. Uh, Maddow is not supposedly an entertainment show. It's, supposedly that's not the competition. It's supposed to be a new show, I guess. Full disclosure, I haven't watched a new show in a long, long time, so I might be the wrong guy for this. Um, That's an echo chamber, and the bad news about echo chambers is everybody gets one, no matter what side you're on. So we can say things about, say what you will about Colbert and about Hannity, but you know what? They serve an audience, and so does the new Roseanne. So you're comparing Colbert to Hannity? He did. Well, I mean, no, and that's interesting, though, because it is all sort of lumped together. It is. And that's it, that's a whole question of, you know, an issue with the, what's happened to the news media. And some of it, the, the attacks they're sustaining, I think, is very dangerous to our democracy. But I also think that they bear some responsibility in the fact that they will not stop it is constant. You know, it's no longer news. There's no more Edward R. Murrows out there. You it's know? network. It's, That's why I can't show network to people. Great it, movie. I, 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 it's a great movie, but the problem is if you show... You know, I do this occasionally with younger people, just a hell of it. I'll, I'll make them watch network, and they'll go, yes, yeah, so what? That's what, exactly what... It's, it's more than prescient. So, you know, it's the banner. We're, we're in the life of the red banner breaking news right yeah it's on cnn it's on msnbc i read the new york times online there was a breaking news banner yesterday (laughs) on the new york times online and it said uh general kelly urged uh donald trump to fire you know scott (laughs) pruitt and that's breaking trump resisted it's like that's not breaking news but I looked. Yeah. And so that's the sort of place we're in is is how 
do I get you to look? It is so very exhausting to live in a 24-hour news cycle. And then at the end of that news cycle, go to your television for entertainment and have comedy based on the damn news cycle. That's for me. It's just it's exhausting and soul crunching, crushing for me to just not be able to get away from it. And I'm pretty good at getting away from stuff. Right. I think a lot of people have a hard time getting away with it. I, I want to bring up something that sort of connects uh, in terms of just things being cyclical and, and kind of asking if this is something that's now going to die out. And it was, you know, uh, is the superhero movie. Uh, we just did recently an uh, episode where we talked about the return of the Western. And that's been happening slowly, really picking up steam a lot over the last few years, uh, especially with Westworld success. But there's several big Westerns, and they're constantly, you know, that that's happening again. And I want to ask you guys your thoughts in terms of the superhero film. Is that... Is that here to stay because of the politically charged climate we're in? Is it going to go the way of the Western? It's interesting. I was just thinking that there's a direct line between Stephen Boschko and The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I, I'm, that's a half-formed thought, but I like that. Taking mm. the gritty reality of, of um, where, where does he live again? Gotham City. Sorry. Um, Taking the gritty reality of, of Gotham City and making it. Yeah. Because his Hill Street Blues, it, is, it was in this unnamed Gotham City. Yeah. Well, it's, I think there's a direct line there. And, and it says a lot for people, like, like the kind of stuff that I like to write, is that people really want to see that. They want to see the underside. And it's not like 1930s Warner Brothers underside where it's a bunch of rich guys talking about gangsters, talking like gangsters. They really want to see that world. And the Western, the big secret, I think... The Western endures because, brace yourself, all action movies are Westerns. No, I get that. But the audience should therefore brace themselves immediately. But But Westerns died out. But also, it's, I, I mean, one way to answer your question is take a look at the success of Deadpool. And the tone of Deadpool. Yeah. And you'll hear executives say now about anything, can you give, no matter what you're writing, can you give me the tone of Deadpool mm-hmm. for this profoundly ironic, cynical group of kids coming up who want genre subverted a little bit? Mm-hmm. And they you know, want it R-rated. Which yeah, they, finally. They, they're, they're sexualized, they're... You know they're they're a little more sophisticated than we were when we were growing up, Damn or right. at least they they have been exposed to more of life's unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, to just twist genre, and this is probably a bad example, uh, but Unforgiven. You know, this is a movie that won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. When Westerns were not doing business. Right. That's true. And one of the reasons, well, one, it was an unbelievable movie, but, you know, Clint Eastwood sort of made the Mm anti-Western Western. Western. You know, it was an anti-violent. It was ugly. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a clean shot that killed that kid, you know, when he shot that kid. Um, And. And I, I don't know about the westerns coming down the pipe, 
but are they genre busting like Westworld? Are they? No, I mean, there's, you know, this year we had uh, Hostels, which I thought got completely passed over at the Oscars. Uh, That was a very interesting film and beautifully shot. And, you know, it was great storytelling there. There's been there's a slew of them. There was this one that I thought was actually pretty bad in the Valley of um, uh, Violence, in the Valley of Violence, um, which also came out. There's uh, another show on Netflix. There's two Western shows on Netflix right now. Uh, The the show that was on um, uh, HBO, the Western Dead... Deadwood. Deadwood. Deadwood was one of the best oh shows HBO ever had. But to me, that was at a time period where they were trying to resurrect the Western, and mm-hmm. it hadn't. Now there's a lot of Westerns coming out. And I don't know if it's because of the success of Westworld. I don't know if we're, like, th- there's a need for that again. But are, I'm wondering if, is that going to come back and superheroes are going to go away again or are they just I don't or, think, uh, superheroes aren't going anywhere anywhere for the time being because of the massive investment in studios in in the material it, yeah. and, and because who uh, because of who owns who there is that detail that's true and too. there's nothing that's been revised from the beginning of motion pictures I'm not kidding from before they talked before they were feature length even there is nothing that's been revised more than the western every couple of years someone says this is a new western because it works, mm-hmm. even in its most revised form. Clint Eastwood has been in a bunch of revisionist westerns. People don't talk about the Italian westerns, which were that he, they talk about them all the time where I live. But those revisionist Stagecoach was a revisionist western. Liberty Valance, my favorite movie in the history of the world, is a revisionist western. And the the western now, I think you will find if you squint your eyes a little bit, it's an urban drama. The Sopranos. Mm. So, well, yeah, well, so was, yeah. Sopranos absolutely had Western elements, but there's nothing in the world that's more satisfying for an audience or a writer or a filmmaker than a fascinating villain and a hero that's not qualified to take him down, taking him down. Mm. Or Very not, nice. Or not, yeah, or like not that. taking him down. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that is what a Western... But it's interesting in a male-dominated landscape, which Westerns were... In the world of Me Too, where everyone is clamoring for female-centric programming, Mm. where does the Western fit? On the Netflix show is all female-driven. It it takes place... the name is it's escaping my ter- right now. It's a terrific now. show, and I'm a mental blanking through the entire cast. But it it's is, all it's it's, all it's a town that's run by women, and it's definitely it feels like a I don't show. Believe that I don't that feels like fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like a show that came out of the Me Too movement for sure. Okay. But it's interesting that they picked bit, yeah. the western, and there there's another genre that's the studios are trying to revive and that's the monster genre because there's a whole slate of um, old uh, universal monster movies wow. coming back. Bride of wow. Frankenstein. The, the mummy was supposed to be the first kickoff of that, but they but it was failed. Crap. It was crap. That were either public domain or, or owned material that's sitting on the shelf that you can use. And Frankenstein is completely over. It's a conversation I believe it or not I have all the time that Frankenstein is completely overdue and, I'll pitch you something right now. What if he was right? 
no one's ever made that story about Frankenstein being absolutely positively right. That, that's mm. all. I, I like the Frankenstein Chronicles. <laughs> Frankenstein Chronicles is, is like. I think they do. I, I, I like that take Fran- on it. It's revisionist made, monster. It made me stand up and cheer. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's unusual, but it's one of those things that just really made me think this is why I got Netflix, and I'm really happy to. That and the other show that I like. So. It's interesting because, you know, and I forgot exactly what he said, but um, Guillermo del Toro said, Monsters have saved me. Mm-hmm. And 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 I forgot the metaphor that he used, but it was basically a depiction of the imperfection, which is the Shape of Water winning Best Picture is making me think this maybe that that's the next one we're going to see. You know, maybe they're going to be successful with. I mean, they're doing. I forget the whole list, but it's a whole series of them. Of re- revising the old monster movies. Why would Universal not do that? Yeah, they own a theme park for crying. I out know. Loud. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, and it's this is this is a um, a tangent, but monstrous behavior. Yeah. No. Mm. No. You absolutely. And it's. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen Mine Hunters on Netflix. I love it. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. And it is taking that. The puzzle show that you find on CBS Mm -hmm. and making it complicated. Absolutely. And people can't get enough of it. You know, people love true crime. They love. That's true. That is a thing. They (laughs) love the really dark places men and women, mostly men, go. And historical. I mean, I think historical period dramas are having kind of a like, have you guys seen The Alienist? Yes. Based on the Caleb yeah, Carr book, yeah. yeah, that that was a TNT drama um, with Luke Evans and um, Daniel Bruhl from. I sat down to love that show. The German guy in every movie mm. that needs a German guy. <laughs> what happened to British guys being in every movie? Uh, they are. They just have American Especially accents in the now. World. Why did everybody in the ancient world have a British accent? <laughs> Women like it. Uh, but I, I mean, I do think that monster theme because there's some monster themes in the Alienist, really too. And I mean, I think that that that's an interesting point: monstrous behavior. And I think we were in a period of the superhero needing justice, and I think we're still in that period. We're d- desperate for justice and desperate for heroes. But I do think we're like that. We are going to see sort of, particularly with the Shape of Water being so successful and curious what you guys thought about that by the way did you feel it deserved best picture um you know who knows <laughs> <laughs> that is diplomatic I'll, I'll, no, no, I'll get you I'll, I'll get you out of this one if you like I'll, please I'll, at least I'll throw, I'll throw myself I'll, I'll throw myself on this live pomegranate but uh best picture awards are one thing but I would Here's the question. What won it three years ago? Yeah, uh, I know. 12 Years a Slave. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, that's a good okay, guess. So I didn't really love why that we, Why don't we give it the award? We'll, give, we'll, we'll decide if it's best picture three years from now. Funny. The Academy decided what they decided. Well, you know. The Academy's well, got their standards. I don't Is care it, what thing. I, you know, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, I've never gotten through an award show in my life. I just, you know, because it's not, well, I'm too much of a narcissist. It's not, if they're not about me, then who cares? But, uh. Do you guys care about that stuff? Like, do you care about winning awards? Um, 
Having only been nominated for one, I really would like some hardware before <laughs> Having been show, pushed away by the police where they were giving one out. Was that Spin City? I was nominated for Writers Guild Award wow. for a movie I wrote for Lifetime about breast cancer. Oh. It was um, a trilogy of short films called Five. And my oh, movie I remember that. That was show. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it was lovely. I didn't know that was yeah. you. Wow. We... we we lost to someone who didn't deserve it. I'm uh. not better. <laughs> I really, I really wanted to win. Yeah, you know, look, um, we're all human. Yeah, and hardware is nice. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be the silver medalist. <laughs> no one ever talks about the silver medalist. Spoken like a true American. Spoken like a silver medalist. <laughs> uh, so did you, did you want to talk about me too? Uh, yeah. We don't have to do it. We can talk about Me Too. The Me Too story that I would like to see personally is okay, uh, we can all name names. Let's not do it because we all know names of our own, I'm sure. So, right this minute, we're having this pleasant conversation, and there is someone who works in a car dealership in Akron. What about her? Yeah. What about her Me Too? Well, I, I have my own Me Too, especially, and not, you know, I was not able to have a a lawyer or have I didn't have a platform to to get out there. I mean, and it's te- mine was like ten years too early. So I mean, and I know many other women who've had their own me too. And so that it, it's true. It's like, what about that person? I do think that the the woman who actually founded the and coined that term it, is there are people in that movement who are daily trying to make change but in terms of like to, to point it to this conversation is that now do you think that content is going to change because of that movement do you think that there's going to be more ladybirds do you think that was just a token you know lady bird anticipated the me too movement didn't it in terms of it did but the know. awards were all right on top of it so, Big Little Lies got a lot of attention and got Loved some hardware, yeah. and they, you know, that was implicit, uh, spoiler alert, in, in that particular story yep. of an uh, abused woman, and they're making it again, but, you know, look, the, the stories have to be good. Right, and, and they have to be well done. And if it's on the nosed, earnest crap, I think people are not not going to watch it. And so they're, you know, we'll see what the networks and studios start to put on. But I, I, I people don't love earnest pat, wrap it up in a bow, mm-hmm. preaching, you know, didactic crap. It keeps me off television and it keeps me, I'm, I'm serious. It's one of the reasons I'm not a late night TV viewer because I just, whatever your little cause is, the yeah. jour pally, I get lectured at all day. Funny. And I do not need a late night lecture when I could be watching Sense of Iwo Jima for the 800th time. <laughs> well, but the idea of women, more women directors and more women being able to tell stories out there, I, I, well, it sure. needs to happen because I think that, you know, that will bring more perspectives. And I I, I, I like that idea. Well, let me pivot a little bit and, and ask what you guys thought about Black Panther. Um, because that also, you did not watch it? I didn't watch it. I, I'm looking forward to seeing okay. it. Okay. 
that I, I mean that was very much in our same here our world because we watch all the genre right. fiction stuff and it got a 90 whatever it did on rotten tomatoes and i have to tell you i i liked it but at the end of the day it's a marvel movie it's not it's and it's part of their little blueprint that they've geniusly marketed and yeah. it's a marketing masterpiece yeah. but is it a brilliant film no not at all but it absolutely benefited from a, a time period where a lot of people felt you know not included and here was i i understand the social significance of it we, and and that's a question too is is the social significance does that trump you know whether or not should it be held up to a high standard because it's socially significant if you if you can put it on a poster why the hell not we must remember what we must remember the business that we are in and the business that we are in is the magical transformation of reality and the distance from your life. Yeah. That is the business that we – and you can have all – the studios can decide we're going to have directors of whatever gender or orientation. What the decision is, is my audience coming back? Are they happy? Am I serving these people? That, that's what's going to happen. and That's what we do. And when we lose sight of that and we start telling audiences what to think and how to think and it's – it's it's a problem. I was giving a little a little anecdote, if I may. I was giving a little talk the other week, and one of the question and answer period, one of the fellows said, "Nice fellow," stood up and said, "Well, you're talking about these three act movies and beginnings, middles, and ends, and you know, and satisfying endings and identifiable characters, and but my movies that I want to make are about social change." I said, well, that's great. There's 65 people in this room. Does anybody want to see a movie about social change? <laughs> Yeah, I've never really liked an Angelina Jolie movie. Social, <laughs> social changes incidental. What about Tomb Raider? I like that. Yeah, <laughs> social change can be a great incidental event. I mean, uh, long before the march on Selma, um, my hero, John Ford, made, was great. made Sergeant Rutledge, mm. which was a story about an African-American cavalryman accused of raping a white woman. It was made for a Saturday afternoon matinee audience. And... It was a cowboy movie with Woody Strode, unfortunately, someone who seems to have been forgotten. And that movie had more effect for the civil rights movement than a lot of marches did because young people in that, sat in that theater and said, who is the 10th Cavalry? Who is Captain Buffalo? Who is this guy was singing about? It was great. That's how social change happens. Well, let me ask you this, and then we're going to need to kind of wrap it up soon. But I'm not ready to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of tired. <laughs> well, you guys uh, go home. I'll sit here and You said that the platform drives content. That's my current theory that can change on the way out the door. So does social – do social issues drive no, the I said, content? I, I said delivery device. Uh, delivery devices, sorry. But in, by that same respect, do you think – that socialists drive content. They can if we are entertaining, which is our primary our primary job because it's called show business, which means you have to do two things. You have to put on a show, and that means you can't be boring. So getting those kids in that Saturday afternoon matinee to, to accept an African-American cowboy hero in 1958, whatever it was, that was a big deal. It was a big deal. Can well, it, 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 it would be a long time before it happened again. Well, it you know did what? happen with I, Black Panther. It, it, it only took, you know, it only took sixty years. But yeah. but I look, 
in the I think Warren's right. I think entertainment trumps everything. And if you can sneak some peas and carrots <laughs> into it, what you know, because kids love the irony. Yeah. And so if it's not straightforward, um, then then it'll work. People love underdogs too. They do. Our heroes, like I said, weak heroes are the name of the game. A, a, a hero that cannot possibly overcome this obstacle is the name of the game. That's how you make social change by making that weak hero overcome after they cannot do anything else, after they've totally been destroyed. That's that's our tool, that's our weapon, that's what I try to do every day. Can so. I come take your class? Yeah, it would be so awesome if you guys would just show up and talk instead of me because it's, I'll show uh, up and talk. I'll great. show up and talk. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Good because I I'm doing, I'm, doing, I'm doing one on ASU next next month right here in Los Angeles, right here in Santa Monica. So you're both drafted. Well, gentlemen, as always, very fascinating conversation. You're great at this, Sarah. Thank Thanks. you. You're wonderful. Guys, you guys, I love talking so to you guys. Smart. I think we need to have a part oh, four. Don't even get me started. <laughs> uh, Warren Lewis, Stephen Godcho. Uh, I I did not uh, plug you guys in the beginning because we've got your bios up. But don't worry about it. We're good. Do, you, do you guys? Do you have anything you guys want to plug? No. All right. Well, go to our website, thehmcnetwork.com/slash/interviews, uh, and. You will find our full series of The Age of Distraction and more information on Warren and Stephen. Thank you, gentlemen. Pleasure. Thank you. See ya.